Thanks for tuning in to the September 2022 edition of the UCLA Anderson Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller. I'm a senior economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And for this edition, we're honored to have with us John List, a professor at the University of Chicago and the chief economist of Walmart. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Leo. Thanks so much for having me. So there's so much that I want to talk with you about. Uh, you're, you're kind of this person that when I think about the scale at which you operate, right? You write <laughs> books, you publish papers, you're the chief economist of Lyft and of Uber, and now chief economist of Walmart. I mean, you're, you're really involved in, you know, in, in so many different projects and so many great ideas. Um, we want to talk mostly about the voltage effect, but we want to bring in a little bit of your experience uh, you know, actually running some of these experiments in the various places and organizations that you've worked. Um, when it comes to developing and scaling ideas, you've helped startup scale up. Uh, and now in your sandbox, you have the largest retailer in the US and one of the largest private sector employers in the US. And so this is the context in which I want to bring in <laughs> your book and, and, and some of this. Uh, other sure. sure. So let's start with figuring out if an idea can scale. What do you normally think about when you're trying to figure out, you know, is this a good idea? Can I scale this up? Yeah, so I'll tell you what, five years ago, I thought very differently about scale than I do now. So five years ago, I largely thought, well, the idea worked and it seems to have really good signal. And what I mean by good signal is it had a big treatment effect. And it seemed to be with a general group of people. So I think it will scale. And the last five or so years, I've been working on the science of scaling. And what that means essentially is when you look at an idea, what are the features of that idea that will scale? And what are the features of that idea that will cause it not to scale. And today, I sort of look at an idea and say, look, there are five fundamental features, which I in the book call five vital signs. And if you check all of these boxes, this is an idea that has a chance to scale. You still have to execute now, okay? So the first half of the book is about the features of the idea. In the second half of the book are what I would kind of call four little behavioral economic secrets to execution. But before we get there, let's talk about the, the five features. So that's kind of the way I would, I would think about any idea. Does it have these five vital signs? All right, so the five vital signs, false positives, right? Know your audience the chef or ingredients, and I'll pause there for a second because this was one of my favorites, because I thought to myself, well, John List's projects all seem to scale. Is it because it's John List or is it something about his projects? And so there I thought the chef or ingredients, maybe it's the chef, um, spillovers, and then the cost trap. So those are the five. Um, you know, so maybe if we can go through really quickly, a few sentences on each. What do you mean by false positives? Sure. Think about a COVID test. You get a COVID test, and if it says you're positive for COVID, it might be wrong. And when it's wrong, that's called a false positive. As researchers, we try to control the false positive rate to be 5%. That, that's the best case scenario that 
5% of the time when we say a program really works, it doesn't work. So even in the best case scenario, one in 20 ideas that look great in the Petri dish aren't so great when you scale them. So that's, that's the way I want you to think about false positives. Now, I think in the real world, false positives are much, much greater than 5% because of things like confirmation bias. If we really think the idea is gonna work and we get data that says it's not so good, we tend to say, well, the data are wrong. And when we get data that says it's good, we say, oh, look at the data. It's in line with what I want. That's called confirmation bias. So a lot of times as humans, we have these biases that really lead us down a kind of a bad path of taking on more false positives. So that's chapter one, false positives. Chapter two is really know your market, know the extent of market and be honest about determining with my current product or service, how big of a market do I actually have? Most of the time we overestimate the extent of market or the market size. Chapter three, which you brought up is, is one of my favorite chapters because it's titled, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? And it moves from chapter two, which is really about the population of people to talk about the population of situations. And it really asks, when you had your idea and you tested it out, what were the fundamental features or the non-negotiables of that idea? And can you have the same inputs in those non-negotiables that you had in the Petri dish? Are those available at scale? So think about, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? A lot of restaurants try to scale. A lot of restaurants fail. Every time they try to scale when the initial success was because of the chef, it won't scale. Why? Because unique humans don't scale. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, wait a second, John. Um, you've scaled your operations reasonably well. What's going on here? You're telling people unique humans don't scale. That's right. Think about Uber and Lyft. As you mentioned, I was a chief economist at both Uber and Lyft. If we needed drivers that drove like Danica Patrick or Jeff Gordon or Al Unser Jr. or Michael Schumacher, we're dead, right? Because those types of drivers are unique and there's no way we can hire enough at scale, but we can hire drivers like me who will scale it gives you a sense about, in my own operation, I set it up as teams. And I make sure that what I tell my team to do in the different pods, you know, I have my Walmart pod, I have my early education pod, I started a, a preschool in Chicago Heights, I have my University of Chicago pod. I very forcefully say, here is what your job is, here's what you're going to do, any task that takes my efforts, I don't give to anyone else mm. because what I can offer, my comparative advantage won't be scalable. So it's an understanding that you have to be able to delegate, but you have to delegate the features that the unique human isn't responsible for. But interestingly, I also think, right, one of the reasons yeah. that you scale is that you teach, right? And so this is a form of scaling because you write one book 
And millions of people can read this book and learn those ideas, right? You teach a class, your students learn the skill set that you have taught them. They also go on and teach. And so there's a different way of scaling too, which is this knowledge sharing that you're, that you're providing to your audience. A hundred percent. And sometimes unique humans can teach what is unique about their knowledge. Like in this case, I can teach you, look, these are the five vital signs. This is what you should do for execution. That will work in general, but in many cases, there's a twist of one of those that you need to apply to make sure you get the highest voltage possible. And that's nearly impossible to teach because the unique difference comes at you in so many different ways that sure, I can teach you about principles of economics. I can teach you about the science of scaling but to actually apply it, in many cases, it will take kind of a tweak of, of what you learn in that book. A lot of times, the book will get you 90% of the way there. Then you're fine anyway, right? But to get the last 10%, you might need an extra bit of knowledge or an understanding about how to generalize a principle that I teach in the book to a specific setting. That, that's what I mean by if you need that extra, like in many cases, a restaurant, a, a dish, whether it's really deemed really good or really bad, is almost like a knife edge case. Mm -hmm. In those knife edge cases, they really need the unique individual. Economics is more, look, if I can get you to the neighborhood of good results, then you're kind of okay. So economics is a bit different that way that it's not a ton of knife edge. There are some knife edge, don't get me wrong, but a little bit different than cooking, okay? So, so the outcome. Now, vital sign number four is every idea will have a spillover or a set of spillovers. In the book, I talk about what happened at Uber when we scaled tipping. So my team on top of, you know, in 2017, we rolled out tipping in the Uber app before that, there was no tipping in the app. A lot of your listeners might not know that, but we introduced tipping the summer and fall of 2017. And my team did a series of large-scale field experiments around tipping and how when, for example, only a small group of drivers received tips in a market, say five or 10%, versus when they all received tips, the outcomes are very different. And what I mean by that is if only 5% of drivers are able to receive tips, they earn more money and they work more. But if all of the drivers are able to receive tips, you have a bunch more people working, but it depresses the wages all the way down. So there's no wage effect. It doesn't really matter if you're receiving tips or the pre-receiving tips, you receive the same amount of money because it goes to a new market equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So that's an idea that doesn't scale well because of market-wide spillovers. And then the fifth one is this, what I call the supply side of scaling. And that's, does your idea have economies of scale or does your idea have diseconomies of scale? So I love this. I love that you know a lot of the results of scaling depend on particular circumstances, not only of the audience, but of the person doing the scaling, the circumstances in which you're doing the scaling. And one of the things that I found most fascinating was you know, this research that you saw that you cited about competition, right? That 
it isn't so much that males are more competitive inherently than females. It's oftentimes the circumstance that causes us to observe these, these outcomes. Um, so, so, you know, really fascinating for us to think about, you know, not only can ideas scale, but it matters, you know, maybe they scale for a particular group, for a particular audience. And the idea has to change in order for it to be scalable with different groups of people. Yeah, look, that's a really keen insight. And, and I think that for decades, in fact, right now in the social sciences, we are we are sort of in the heterogeneity revolution. Yeah. And what this revolution is essentially it's saying one size doesn't fit all. There might be a group of people where you need one kind of product, a group of people who you need a slightly different kind of product. People are different. And this this is also with public policies, you know, early childhood programs, et cetera. What I want to urge people to understand is that, well, that is correct. And that's basically chapter two. It's on heterogeneity of people. Just as important, if not more important, is heterogeneity of the situation. Mm. And there are fundamental features of whether it's a teacher teaching or uh, a, a home visitor in an early childhood program or features of the product or features of any general feature of the situation. What I found in my own work is that those elements are even more important than the differences between people. So back up, what I'm what I'm telling you is that while we constantly worry about the differences between the populations of people, that is much less of a problem when you compare it to the populations of situations. It's it's much more difficult to generalize across populations of situations than it is across populations of people. And that's an important point to always understand as someone who's trying to scale. Which comes to you always have to adapt, right? right. It's, it's kind of like a shark, right? right? You die if you stay still. You have to actually keep changing and swimming and making sure that your product keeps changing to the changing you know, economic circumstances and changing situations. 100%. But... When you say you constantly have to adapt and it's based on science, you constantly have to test and generate data and look at new product configurations to figure out um, how do I need to change? So you're right to say I constantly have to adapt. But if I'm a listener, I'm thinking, OK, what does that mean? OK, what I'm telling you it means is to constantly test and retest and figure out all the time, do I need a different algorithm or, or whether it's pricing algorithm or, or different uh, product in terms of product differentiation or different mix? If you're a retailer like Walmart, there are a lot of different questions that if you stay stagnant, you're dead. And the best case scenario is you are constantly testing and retesting and saying, how can I do a little bit better? Because you have to constantly be thinking about opportunity cost of time every minute that goes by that you are not providing the right product mix or you're not pricing correctly that's an extra minute that you're losing money or you're losing the chance to make the world a better place so if we constantly think about this as an opportunity cost of time i think then you have a real urgency to continue to generate data examine data analyze data make decisions from data 
So now we're already, I think, shifting into the second part of your book, which mm -hmm. is once you have a great idea that can scale, how do you scale it, right? And this is what you call a high voltage scaling. Yeah. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about this part of the book? Yeah, absolutely. So a first point is I know nothing about execution. The only thing I know about execution is you need to execute to make your business work or your organization work. Okay. So why in the world am I writing the second half of this book, which is all about execution? Because here's what I've learned. Uh, I've, I've been around a long time. I worked in the White House. I've worked with a lot of different firms. All organizations tend to make the four mistakes, the same four mistakes in, when it comes to executing. The first mistake is they don't appreciate the breadth and depth of how they can use incentives. So that's chapter six. And it starts off talking about non-financial incentives. And I talk about, look, at, at Uber, when we did the Uber tipping experiments, it's kind of crazy, the data around how many people tip. Only 1% of people tip on every trip. You heard that right, 1%. And three out of five people never, ever tip. Okay, you heard that right. Three out of five people in our data never, ever tip. Okay, you might be thinking, where's John going with this? If I take those three out of five people who never, ever tip on Uber, and I look at their tipping on, say, a yellow taxi cab, where at the end of the trip, we settle up face-to-face, 90% of them will tip. You can say, well, what's going on? Same people. The situation has changed. In one case with Uber, you're deciding to tip after the trip when you're at home or in your office, but you're not face-to-face -face with the driver. The social pressure, the social norm, your self-image, social image, et cetera, et cetera, these are all different than when you're doing it face-to-face. And that causes you to act in a very different way. The general lesson here is that these types of incentives that are non-financial in nature can be very powerful and they're very powerful when it comes to scaling. Okay, so I talk about those. I also talk about ways to use financial incentives like clawback. And, and I, did, I, I did this with a teaching experiment. I do this with a journal that I run right now. This, the general idea is give the bonus up front, tell people what they have to do to keep the bonus. And if they don't perform, you take the bonus back. Later on, it's called clawback. It's really, really effective and it leverages loss aversion. Exactly. Terms, yeah, this is, yeah, this is that famous, uh, I think, paper that talks about giving someone a mug and then asking how much exactly. they're willing exactly. to actually buy that mug back. And it's always a higher number than the, yeah. what, what they would be willing to buy the mug to begin with. Because they now that they have it, they don't want to they don't want to give it up. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So these are old experiments at Dick Thaler, Jack Kanash, Danny Kahneman. They, they were doing these seminal experiments in the eighties and nineties in economics. I've taken some of those insights and and I've done some large scale field experiments around them, and, mm -hmm. and you find that they can be effective. Okay, so so let's leave that on the sidelines. That's chapter six. Chapter seven is thinking on the margin. And the idea here is our human brains are programmed to think in averages. And what I mean by that is anytime you see somebody present an academic paper or present statistics, they always give you averages. And sometimes they say, 
I have a very large group. So look at my average, how precise it is, so to speak. This is kind of the wrong way to think about decision-making. I advocate taking that big data set and slicing it up into thinner slices or thinner pieces, and then try to make decisions on the marginal piece rather than the average piece. And the, the example there is an example from the White House about how we should spend public dollars. But I also oftentimes talk about examples that I observed at Lyft and Uber, where people are constantly thinking in terms of averages when they really should be thinking about marginal and, and what the marginal thinking means. Okay, so that's, that's a typical mistake that people make. The next chapter is about quitting. And, and that really gets to the opportunity cost of time. So I argue in this chapter that people don't quit enough or in the business world, people don't pivot enough. And people tend not to quit because society tells them that it's repugnant not to quit, right? That's mm -hmm. society's problem. The other reason why we don't quit is because we neglect our opportunity cost of time, okay? And what I mean by that is, I did a survey of recent people who quit their jobs. And I asked them, give me the reasons why you quit. Reason number one, I lost meaning of work. Reason number two, I didn't get the promotion I thought I deserved. Reason number three, I didn't get the pay raise I thought I deserved. Dot, 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 all the way down to reason number 10, I didn't like my cubicle anymore. Every reason was my current job got soiled. Mm -hmm. Nobody said my opportunity set got better. I just couldn't afford to stay as the chief economist at Lyft because my opportunity set got better and I moved to Walmart. We're just not programmed to think that way. So in this chapter, this is science as well. It's not art. In this chapter, I talk about our science and I show how, how and why people should quit more, whether it's a relationship, an apartment, a job, a uh, job. Uh, let's say an entrepreneur, we just don't pivot or quit enough. And then the last chapter is on culture. And it's about how to um, scale culture. But I'll go back now, Leo, go ahead. Yes, let me ask a little bit about this quitting because now we're yeah. seeing this in, in a really interesting way in the economy, which is people who quit their jobs during this past year have done better than people who haven't quit their jobs and remained at their current jobs. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this, right? Like yeah, why, yeah. why now, you know, is this revolution of quitting? and people who are you know, quitting doing better than, than non-quitters? Yeah, yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, let me back up and say, okay, what do I present in the chapter? So Steve Levin and I put together an experiment where we had people sign up who are on the margin of quitting something, maybe a relationship, maybe a job, maybe they wanted to move cities, and they just weren't sure. They were grueling over what to do. We had them flip a coin. And if it came up one way, we said they should change. And if it doesn't, we said, don't change. For example, you flip a head, you should change. If you flip a tail, you don't change. And then we told them you need to execute that. Of course, we couldn't force them to, but the majority did do it. And what we find is six, nine, 12 months later, they're happier. Mm. They're happier that they made the change. I don't know what's going on in the data, Leo, that you're talking about, because in that case, it wasn't random, right? Th those are people selecting to move out. In my example, I'm randomly having people quit. 
and comparing them to the random group who didn't quit. So I, I can say something hopefully a little bit stronger in terms of causality. What mm -hmm. I can say is that's evidence that people don't quit enough, that people on the margin should pretty much be quitting. If you've thought about it for that long, you should quit. That'd be the advice I would give to the listeners. And it feels like the data that you're talking about are at least consistent mm -hmm. with what I'm talking about in terms of those people who did take the plunge during COVID, they're a lot better off because they're happier. That feels consistent with, it's not the same evidence, like I say, because it's not randomization, yeah, 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 yeah. but in its selection. And, and you, you should expect that to be a stronger treatment effect than what I have. But they mm -hmm. both kind of point the same direction that once a person who's grueling over a decision makes a decision to actually plunge, on average, maybe not every time, but on average, they're going to be happier. So then let's get to the last part, which is scaling culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so last chapter, scaling culture. And, and this was a fun chapter because, you know, I've done work in the gender pay gap for 20, 25 years. I've done work in the area of discrimination. I've done field experiments for 20 years. I've done a lot of work on the science of diversity and inclusiveness. And these are all scientific topics that when you take them whole cloth and start thinking about them as a large, very important entity, it rolls up into culture. And it rolls up into what kind of culture do you want your organization to have? And what are the features of that culture that you can control from the very beginning of when you're building an org? And I talk about simple things like in a job advertisement, saying something like wages are negotiable. That actually matters a lot. You know why it matters a lot? Because when you say wages are negotiable, what we find is that women then will negotiate a lot more than in the case where you leave that sentence out of the job ad. And when women negotiate more, they come in with an equal pay compared to men. Because one of the reasons why we have a gender pay gap is because men negotiate a lot more than women on average. So if we can set up simple things like designing a job ad or designing the workplace in a way that makes it more inclusive and fair, we should do that. And we have science around these issues. That's what chapter nine talks about. The science of, of building a culture, the science of building an equitable workplace. And of course I draw upon some of my experiences at Uber. I was, I was there during some of the, the crazy times when um, Uber was in many cases rightfully accused of not setting up a great workplace and in not designing a great workplace. And I don't need to go into that. That's all well chronicled elsewhere. Um, but I gave some of my thoughts about, about that and building a culture in chapter nine. So last question to, to kind of wrap things up, because yeah. now you talk a lot about scaling. What do you envision at Walmart? Like what are your, your big ambitions? Oh. Of how, to, of how to run experiments and scale ideas at Walmart. Yeah, yeah. So you might think, well, John's crazy. He's talking about scaling. He's worked with startups and very nimble 
um, startups, and now he's going to a Fortune One company. What in the world is John doing? Okay, so here's what John is doing. In the end, I want to first of all do science, and I want to use science to help change the world for the better. And at Walmart, it gives you the largest sandbox in the world to work on labor issues, to work on customer side issues, to work on sustainability. You know, Rob Metcalf, Greer Gosnell, and I have a paper from a few years ago how we, we just saved millions of gallons of fuel for Virgin Atlantic Airways by using three behavioral economic insights. And once we showed them, here's how it works. Now we've saved just millions and millions of gallons of fuel. Now, when I saw that result, a small tweak let's call it marginal thinking, that leads to huge impact. I started to think about Walmart has that example all over the place, supply chain, customer side, delivery, last mile delivery. It's now the second largest uh, e-commerce site in, in the US. It, it has the stores, you know, 150, touches 150 million consumers every week. So you have a real chance that behavioral insights, simple economic insights, if you can make some even small changes, it just reverberates throughout the entire economy and you have a real chance to make significant change. And then I started to think about, there are a lot of new products that Walmart's trying out. There are a lot of stores. A big point that I make in the book is that to scale quickly, you want to do multi-site trials. Well, voila, you have that in spades at Walmart because you have 4,500 stores and you can quickly do, does the situation matter? Does a store, does it work in Laramie, Wyoming, the same way it works in New Jersey, the same way it works in Mississippi? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the situational features or the people cause it to be different. And you learn something fundamental in terms of how the economic science applies in these different areas. And you can also help the firm and, and help customers of that firm. So all of those together led me to say, the opportunity cost of staying at Lyft is too high. So I'm gonna quit and I'm gonna pivot and I'm gonna go to Walmart. I followed my own advice. I love it, I love it. I'm excited to see what comes next in the, in the world of economic experiments with, uh, with Walmart, uh, you know, data, supply chain, customers. It'll be really fascinating to see what comes out of this. John, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate the time. Uh, and I loved reading your book. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure our listeners also will, will really enjoy this. Thanks so much. Leo, thanks so much for having me and you made my day. Uh, anyone who reads the book and, and likes something in it, um, it warms my heart. So thank you so much. I love it. I think I think one of the things that you taught me is that I should probably quit stuff more often because I'm definitely <laughs> one of these that kind of hangs on to my, you know, to my to my passions long after you know their opportunity cost has told me that I should give them up. But John, thanks every so passion. Much. Look, Leo, every passion that you hang on to is one less passion that you can take on. Exactly. Right? Opportunity cost of time is important. That's a good way to think about it. Thank you, John. Thanks so much, Leo, and have a great day.